Hey everyone, it's Father Pat, here today to offer you my reflections on the scripture readings for today. Our readings today are from the 30th Sunday in Ordinary Time. A reading from the book of Sirach. The Lord is a God of justice who knows no favorites. Though not unduly partial toward the weak, yet he hears the cry of the oppressed. The Lord is not deaf to the wail of the orphan, nor to the widow when she pours out her complaint. The one who serves God willingly is heard. His petition reaches the heavens. The prayer of the lowly pierces the clouds. It does not rest until it reaches its goal, nor will it withdraw till the Most High responds. Judges justly and affirms the right, and the Lord will not delay. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our response, the Lord hears the cry of the poor. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall ever be in my mouth. Let my soul glory in the Lord. The lowly will hear me and be glad. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. The Lord confronts the evildoers to destroy remembrance of them from the earth. When the just cry out, the Lord hears them, and from all their distress, he rescues them. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. To those who are crushed crushed in spirit, he saves. The Lord redeems the lives of his servants. No one incurs guilt who takes refuge in him. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. A reading from the second letter of St. Paul to Timothy. Beloved, I am already being poured out like a libation, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have competed well. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From now on, the crown of righteousness awaits me which the Lord, the just judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearance. At my first offense, no one appeared on my behalf, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength, so that through me the proclamation might might be completed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil threat, and will bring me safe to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus addressed this parable to those who were convinced of their own righteousness and despised everyone else. Two people went up to the temple area to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee took up his position and spoke this prayer to himself. O God, thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income. But the tax collector stood off at a distance and would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and prayed, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the latter went home justified, not the former. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. I gotta confess, I don't like confessing. And it's pretty clear many of you agree with me. A 2008 research study completed by the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate, also known as CARA, of Georgetown University, found that 75% of self-identified Catholics go to confession less than once a year, and 45% don't go at all. 
only 14% go more than once a year. And remember, that was a 2008 survey, almost 15 years ago. I think it's a safe bet that the numbers have gotten worse since then. Now, some of you are going to tell me, oh, at my parish, the lines are so long for confession. Are they? How many go to confession compared to the number of people registered at your parish? And how many of those in line are what I might call frequent flyers, frequent customers, who, while pious, serve to make it look like the percentage of penitents is actually higher than it really is? But back to my confession about confession, that I don't like to confess. I don't. Oh, I could give you the same horror stories that everyone else who complains about confession will give. When I was a seminarian, for example, I went to confession at the Miraculous Metal Shrine in Philadelphia. And after the priest ripped my face off for one of my sins, I swore I would never go to confession there again. I have it. I much preferred a particular priest who often came to the seminary on Friday afternoons uh, to hear confessions, as more than once he fell asleep on me. Now that's mercy. But I digress. I still don't like to go, but I do go because, well, I know I should, and not just because it's a precept of the church and then I'm a priest. I really can't call myself a Christian if I ignore the very words of Christ, which makes today's gospel parable kind of inconvenient. Now, I'll admit from the outset that Jesus doesn't say anything in the parable about the sacrament of reconciliation specifically, which makes perfect sense since the Catholic priesthood didn't yet exist. But the parable does place value on confession of sin in general, public confession of sin in general, in both the righteous Pharisee and the sinful publican. By the end of the parable, it seems the adjectives righteous and sinful, though, have been reversed, or at least any daylight between the holiness of the two men is significantly reduced. Notice first what Jesus did not say. He does not say that the Pharisee is a bad guy. The man prays, fasts, and tithes, even beyond the strict requirements of the law. Now, granted, we can knock him for being prideful and and for a lack of charity, especially with the way he thinks about the tax collector. But we all have our uncharitable thoughts, right? Uncharitable thoughts. Sometimes we think bad about other people, don't we? Jesus also never says that the tax collector is a great guy. He doesn't say that the man isn't a sinner. The guy obviously knows he's committed terrible sins, which is why he lingers on the perimeter of the temple rather than coming further inside. What Jesus does say, however, is that the tax collector was justified, while the Pharisee was not. Now, what does that mean exactly? To be justified is to be in right relationship with God. It's not not a denial of sin, but instead an acknowledgement of the free gift of God to an undeserving recipient. Both men are sinners, perhaps in different ways and to different degrees, but there could be all kinds of circumstances that cause those differences. The important thing to note is that both are in need of justification, and only one humbly asks for it. The tax collector is justified because of his humility, and by extension, his humiliation. He's afraid to raise his eyes to God or to be near anyone who knows just how sinful he is. He feels feels powerless to change or to be forgiven, but he goes to the temple anyway to beg for mercy. That humility and his willingness to brave humiliation is his small contribution to his salvation. Maybe it didn't lead to a miraculous conversion, but at least he admits conversion is needed and that he can't do it without God's help. The Pharisee sees no need to ask for anything. He thinks he can justify himself by his own actions alone. At first glance, Paul's words in our second reading could lead us to think that Paul is in the same category as the Pharisee in the parable. Remember, actually, that Paul is, or at least was, a Pharisee. He seems confident in claiming that a crown of righteousness awaits him. But Paul has freely admitted in other places, 
of his sins and his failures. He even has humiliated himself by putting, putting it in writing and by suffering for the sake of the gospel on many occasions. Even here, he says only that he has competed well and finished the race and perhaps most importantly, kept the faith. The person who finishes last in the New York Marathon can make the same claims as Paul. He's not saying he actually won the race or even placed in the top tier, only that he persevered with at least some positive intentions. And a bit further on, he gives credit where credit is due. And he says, the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me, the proclamation might be completed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil threat and will bring me safe to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Like the publican, Paul has confessed his sins, asked for God's help, and humbly accepted the humiliation of his faults. And so Paul, too, is justified. He is in right relationship with God, seeking to serve him, however imperfectly, standing authentically before God and men, and recognizing his need for God's free gift of grace. It's a precept of the church to confess all serious or mortal sins at least once a year, and to refrain from receiving Holy Communion if a person is aware of being in a state of serious sin. And while not strictly necessary, frequent confession of less serious or venial sins is recommended. The sacrament is a grace-filled aid in standing humbly before God and our fellow sinners in the person of the priest without the humiliation of a public confession, which was the discipline of the early church, no doubt an imitation of our gospel parable for today. In acknowledging our own sins without comparing ourselves to others, we enter more deeply into right relationship with God and our brothers and sisters, asking for divine mercy. And we often forget the purpose of the penitential rite at Mass. At the very beginning of the liturgy, we acknowledge our sins before God and one another. You're actually supposed to feel some sort of sorrow at that point, not just mumble, Lord, have mercy under your breath. I mean, I get it that it's not an ideal setting for self-flagellation, but you get the idea. The sacrament of reconciliation itself, though, is a more profound experience through which deeper healing and justification is possible. I don't go to the dentist because I enjoy it. I do it because I know I need it, even though I'd rather not think about my rotting teeth at all. A good cleaning helps with venial sins, but occasionally a cavity needs to be filled to prevent further decay. You've all likely heard the expression to eat humble pie, referring to a situation where a person has to publicly admit mistake or wrongdoing. The origin of the phrase is from the Middle Ages and actually refers to the practice of not wasting any part of a deer killed for food. The wealthy could afford the meat, but often left the offal or the innards to be consumed by the common folk, usually in the form of numble pie. The innards were called numbles. In spoken English, the N often got dropped. Say, umble pie in your best Cockney accent, if you want to get a feel for that. And since umble pie was eaten by the poor folk, it eventually morphed into being called humble pie. But none of us like to eat humble pie, either literally or figuratively. But we got to eat what nourishes us, physically and spiritually, so that we're justified in right relationship with God and with each other. And you know, with the obvious exception of priests like the guy at the Miraculous Metal Shrine who I met, who needed to eat a little humble pie himself, I think, most of us are pretty understanding in confession. After all, priests are sinners too. And guess what? There's nothing that you'll tell me that's really all that interesting. I may even fall asleep. Do me a favor, though. If I start snoring, tap me. I'd be kind of embarrassed if anyone 
else heard me snore. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have a great day. Thank you.